Welcome to Elmira Baptist Church Sunday School. Good to see everybody. And uh, welcome to those who are watching online. We're glad you're with us. Welcome to those that are here. We have a number of people that normally attend that are ill today, uh, including my wife, Cindy. And uh, so we need to pray for those folks. And the handout was a white handout, no color. It's because I did it. I just did it on paper from home. <coughs> it's four pages. Uh, the first two are re really review. And then uh, all the pages are front only. There's no back to this. So you can just flip the page without having to turn it over. So welcome again. Um, if you'll turn in your Bibles to Colossians. Two, we're going to be uh, reading verses 8 through 23 as our practice is. And we, um, we've been looking at uh, four warnings. And you see on the handout, false philosophy, legalism, angel worship, and asceticism. And today we're going to review... Uh, Verse 14, that's where we're at in, in, these, in this, these passages. And we're going to look at verse 15, 16, and 17. And we're going to look at, uh, if you look at uh, that list of four warnings, we're going to move from false philosophy into legalism, uh, verses 16 and 17. And, that, and that's number two. Uh, with the little diamond there, legalism. That's the second warning that Paul gives us in this passage. And um, there are three statements that um, that uh, we've been looking at. If you look towards the bottom of the page there, three things Christ has done for us that substantiate his sufficiency and show that we're complete in him. And verses 11 through 15 and we're going to be on verse 15. We'll make it to verse 15 and see victory over the forces of evil. So that's kind of where we at, where we're at to orient you. Then we'll be hopefully moving from verse 15 and verse 16 and 17, which is legalism. Uh, I just want to ask the whole church to listen and ask the whole church. All of this is going on in Southern California. My granddaughter's down there, and we can't find her at Cal Poly. She's not answering the phone. She's not calling, and so for her mom and daddy to talk this morning to go find her. So, but it's not just she's probably still on on campus, but there's no phones. Okay. Um, so not just her, but everybody down there needs my prayers. Well, we'll pray for her when we pray, and Cindy uh, has a lot of family down there as well. So, I thought she had all my arm, and that's what she yeah. Your grandmother? No, my granddaughter. Granddaughter, okay. No, my granddaughter's in heaven. She's okay. probably out okay. there. Her name's Maxie. <laughs> Maxie Day. Grand granddaughter. My granddaughter is KJ. KJ. Okay. And I don't know who you go to the doctor with, but you might have had her mother or her father, the doctor, they went to Kaiser and they both never care. Can't hear you. I said, you might have had her mother or her father as your doctor, but you go to Kaiser. Oh. And then the father does a military doctor. Oh, wow. Wow. 
Yeah, we need to pray for Southern California and uh, we've got a specific prayer request for Alice's granddaughter that uh, they can't can't quite page. Her name is Paige, but we sure okay. Paige. I don't think it's a Well, let's pray. Father, thank you so much for the privilege of uh, teaching this class. And what a special message uh, today in verse 15 that, that uh, is so glorious of all the things of the Lord Jesus Christ. Not all of them the major things that the Lord Jesus Christ did on the cross. And I pray, Father, as we look at that, you will drive home to us the significance of, of the Lord Jesus Christ and his uh, dying in our place and all of the things that that has done for us regarding salvation and the victory over sin and uh, the, the enemies uh, principalities of darkness and I pray father that you'd be with those in southern california i pray for all those that have relatives down there we pray for alice's granddaughter pager and that you would be with her and that uh, she would be fine and uh, not uh, not in any difficulty and protect those as uh as this uh, storm comes up and you know i used to water that much water down there and they usually wind up with a lot of problems with uh, 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 you know, soil erosion and other other problems uh, associated with uh, the water and the uh, flash flooding and so forth. Pray your, uh, your mercy upon all of them and that you would protect those and save lives. We thank you for all that you've done for us. We also lift up all those that are ill. I think of my wife so many others that are ill, pastors, mom and dad are ill, and we pray that you would be with them and pray for your healing hand upon them, and uh, pray that you would give us a, a, a good class this morning, and that you would help us to focus on the Lord Jesus Christ and what he's done for us, and help us to see this in a new light. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. So the problem with gesturing while you're praying is you're liable to hit your notes and knock them off so that you can't see them. So excuse me while I get them, but apparently I knocked these off. And uh, so we're on the handout, page one, but I'd like you to turn in your Bibles if you haven't already to Colossians 2, we're going to read verses 8. Oh, wow, look at that. Wow. I haven't had that before. Look at that. We have a retention issue here. <laughs> retention of the notes. These are the scriptures here. You see, look up ahead of time and do the scriptures. Maybe you just have a quite good effort. I tell you, I haven't had that. How many weeks have I done this? I haven't had that before. Okay, so we're on verse 8, chapter 2, um, and I'm going to read that, and I'll tell you each section as we go along. First section is false philosophy. Beware, lest any man spoil you through philosophy and vain deceit after the tradition of men, after the rudiments 
of the world and not after Christ. For in him dwelleth all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. And you are complete in him, which is ahead of all principality and power, in whom also you are circumcised with the circumcision made without hands, and putting off the body of the sins of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, buried with him in baptism, wherein also ye are risen with him through the faith of the operation of God, who hath raised him from the dead. And you, being dead in your sins and the uncircumcision of your flesh, hath he quickened together with him, having forgiven you all, forgiven you all trespasses, blotting out the handwriting of the ordinances that was against us, which was contrary to us, and took it out of the way, nailing it to his cross. And having spoiled principalities and powers, he made a show of them openly, triumphing over them in it. And now the next two verses, 16 and 17, are legalism. Let no man therefore judge you in meat or in drink or in respect of a holy day or of the new moon or the Sabbath days, which are a shadow of things to come, but the body is of Christ. And verse 18 and 19 are angel worship and uh, mysticism too. Let no man beguile you of your reward in a voluntary humility and worshiping of angels, intruding into those things which he hath not seen, vainly puffed up by his fleshly mind, and not holding the head from which all the body by joints and bands, having nourishment ministered and knit together, increases with the increase of God. Wherefore, if ye be dead with Christ from the rudiments of the world, why is though, now this is asceticism, uh, severe punishment of the flesh to gain favor with God. Wherefore, if ye be dead with Christ from the rudiments of the world, why, as though living in the world, are you subject to ordinances, touch not, taste not, handle not, which are all to perish with the using after the commandments and doctrines of men, which things have indeed a show of wisdom in will worship and humility and neglecting of the body, not in any honor to the satisfying of the flesh. Okay, so that's our passages we're looking on, and we are uh, reviewing um, 8 through 14, and we're going to talk about 15, 16, and 17, Lord willing. Um, so on your first page, you see your hand out there under false philosophy, legalism, angel worship, asceticism, um, warning against false philosophy. I think I highlighted that in your, your text there, verses 8 through 15. And the specific warning is, beware lest any man spoil you. And that word really means to kidnap you and take you off like pirate treasure, uh, as, as pirate booty, um, through philosophy and vain deceit or delusional uh, trickery, uh, empty deceit. Christ is the true test of theology, and he's the absolute standard and measurement for all doctrine. And if it's not in accordance with Christ and the revelation God has given to us regarding his son, then we must reject it. And the basis and foundation of the warnings are in 9 through 15. Verse 9 talks about 
the deity of Christ, for in him dwelleth all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. And he uses that word fullness over and over and over again to uh, thwart and re refute the Gnostic heresy. And then, so in that verse, he talks about the supremacy and deity of Christ. And then verses 10 through 15, he talks about the sufficiency and humanity of Christ. And uh, we have this uh, nice compact saying that F.F. Bruce said, Christ is all, and he's all you need. So there's three affirming statements in verses 9 and 10. One is about the full deity of Christ. For in him dwelleth all the fullness of the Godhead. Christ is God, and he's the real fullness of the Godhead. Christ is God. The real humanity of Christ, for in him dwelleth all the fullness of the Godhead, but bodily. So Christ is fully human and fully divine. The word was made flesh and dwelt among us, John 1, 14. And then the sufficiency of Christ in verse 10. And we then are complete or full in him who is the head of all principality and power. So he is fully able to save us. He is fully able because he is God. And we are made full or complete as we share his fullness in him, in union with him. Christ's all-sufficiency is shown by that statement that he is the head of all principality and power. So we've talked about item Roman number two, Roman uh, numeral number two, three things that Christ has done for us that substantiate his sufficiency and show that we're complete in him. And we looked at spiritual circumcision in verse 11 and 12. We're going to briefly touch on it. And then forgiveness of sins, verse 13, 14. And then victory over the forces of evil, uh, which we're going to talk about today. We're going to review those. So spiritual circumcision is right at the bottom of the page. And that verse was, In whom, you are also, in whom also you are circumcised with the circumcision made without hands and putting off the body of sins of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ. Can I ask you a question? Yes. I didn't get that on the scriptures. My mom, I might be ignorant, but <laughs> circumcision made without hands. I don't understand that. That's, that means it's spiritual. Okay, all right. Yeah, in other words, it's not... No, no, that's, that's okay. I want you to ask those questions. It's not physical. You know, what he's doing, he's comparing the sign of the covenant for the for the... Jews, the Hebrews, was for the males to be circumcised. That was done with hands. That was a sign that um, that they were part of God's covenant. And they got in trouble when they didn't do that, remember? So those that were circumcised were God's. It was a sign of their being a part of the covenant. And it was a symbol of cleansing uh, that comes from faith in God. If you look at the last... Uh, line there, MacArthur says that the symbol of cleansing of faith that comes by faith comes by faith. So they were circumcised and it was a sign that they had put off the sins of the flesh. So it was a sign of purification. And so he's saying this is what they did then but we have a spiritual circumcision turn the page the putting off of the body of the sins of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ. So it's actually a text it says, I didn't leave the scriptures in here because I condensed it. We've been over it the previous week. They were 
circumcised in the flesh, but Paul is now talking about a circumcision that's not made with hands, not of the flesh, but it's spiritual. So it's a spiritual circumcision of Christ, and believers have, if you read item C there, have a removal or putting off of the sins of the flesh and a removal of the power of the flesh. And this is a contrast of the new covenant from the old. And now they're a new creation. They have a new nature. And they're freed from the power of sin over them. Before, when we were lost, we only had an ability to sin. We could do nothing to please God. We had because we were, we, had, we were not a new creation. Now, through the new nature, we are free. We have liberty to serve him. We're freed from the necessity of the obligation to serve sin and the flesh because we've been, made, we've been forgiven, we've been cleansed, we have a new nature, and that leads to the baptism, which is item D there. We're buried with him in baptism, wherein you're also risen with him through faith in the operation of God, with raised him, Christ, from the dead. That's verse 12. And the emphasis here is on the new birth and the sufficiency of Christ. That's one of the things, a recurring theme in these verses through 15. And our being made complete in him. Baptism is an external sign of what the Lord Jesus Christ has done for us inwardly through salvation. Baptism pictures the Christian's death, burial and resurrection with Christ. Baptism does not save. It is a ordinance that we go through in obedience to the Lord that pictures our death, burial, and resurrection. Okay? Now we have forgiveness of sins in verse 13 and 14. And this is the second thing. If you look at the bottom of page 1, you'll see that uh, there are Three things that Christ has done for us that substantiate his sufficiency and show that we're completed him. Spiritual circumcision was one. Forgiveness of sins is the second. So that verse 13 tells us, and you being dead in your sins and the uncircumcision of your flesh, that becomes uncircumcision of your flesh becomes a metaphor of being lost. Those that were lost. So you that were dead and unsaved, he has quickened or made to come to life together with him, having forgiven you all your trespasses. So we have forgiveness of sins. And that's number A. In Christ, we have forgiveness of sins. We were dead in our sins. In Christ, we share his bodily resurrection spiritually. And MacArthur said, only through union with Jesus Christ and those can those hopelessly dead in their sins receive eternal life. That quote's in your handout. So we were dead in sins and the uncircumcision. It means our spiritual condition is that we were dead. And the word for sins in the original Greek means falling beside or a false step. So it indicates that that uh, grab a handout. There you go. He's got it. Um, so we're on page two under item number two, forgiveness of sins, letter B. Dead in your sins, just reviewing. Dead in your sins and the uncircumcision. It means our spiritual condition 
was that we were dead because of our sins and our uncircumcision. Okay? He's using that uncircumcision as the Jews did to indicate people who were lost. They, they called the pagans uncircumcised. So uh, the word for sins here in the Greek means a falling beside or a false step, and it indicates our failure to follow the path of righteousness ordained by God. So therefore we're sinners, and we deviated from the way of righteousness uh, and truth. And uh, uncircumcision, again, Acts 7.51 uses that term in the sense of those that weren't saved. So you hath he quickened together with them. Paul emphatically says that they were made, this is item number C, made alive together with Christ at the time of conversion. And having forgiven you all your trespasses means that he quickened us at the same time he forgave us. The word forgiven here is used based on the root word in the Greek for grace. And that it means to grant a favor or kindness, to give freely, and to grant forgiveness or forgive freely. And that's the same word that's used for forgiven. Forgiven and grace use the same root word in Greek. So that really points to the fact that divine grace that we get from God through the Lord Jesus Christ is the foundational principle at work in here for forgiveness. MacArthur said forgiveness of guilty sinners who put their trust in Jesus Christ is the most important reality, most important reality in Scripture. Um, now, we talked about this. Sheila talked about blotting <laughs> and uh, blotting out the handwriting of ordinances that was against us, which was contrary to us, and took it out of the way, nailing it to his cross, verse 14. And this, this I, I pulled out the song last time and read part of it. My sins are blotted out, I know. You know that song? That yeah. song reflects this verse. So uh, this, this verse... 14 expands our understanding of forgiveness and because it describes what it means and how forgiveness was accomplished. Having blotted out means having canceled. Um, and it's not just taking a blotter and getting the excess ink. This means to, the word it translated, to wipe away or wipe out. So the handwriting of ordinances that was against us, which was contrary to us, item G, uh, was a handwritten note or bond of indebtedness, a signed confession of debt. Um, that's F.F. Bruce is a quote. It's a handwritten note or bond of indebtedness, a signed confession of debt. And Goodspeed tells us, he translates this, he canceled the bond which stood against us. All of us have that. And that's the law, really. The reference here is to the Mosaic law. And there's three descriptions used for the law. The ordinances, it was written, uh, it was written commandments contained in ordinances. And you see that in Ephesians 2.15, which says, having abolished in his flesh the enmity, even the law of commandments contained in ordinances, for to make in himself of Twain, that's two, one new man, so making peace. Now, he's in a context there talking about the Jew and the Gentile. 
So he abolished in his flesh the enmity, even the law of commandments, um, contained in ordinances, and that's referring to his, his work on the cross. That was against us. That's God's law had a valid claim against us uh, that while we had failed, and it shows uh, us and it condemns us and shows us guilty. So we had shows that it shows that we had failed, and it condemns us and shows us guilty. So ordinances that was against us, that was contrary to us, against us. The law also stood directly opposed to us. Since we could not meet its requirements and claims, it was, if you were, hostile to us. So the law justly stands in opposition to us, accuses us, declares us guilty before God. And then H, he took it out of the way, nailing it to his cross. Paul says, God canceled the bond against us, the law, and he took it away, nailing it to his cross. And I love the fact that this took it means that it has been removed permanently so its claims can never alienate us from God. Curtis Bonds said that. Phillips renders it has completely annulled. And I started to say it earlier, but the took it is the same word that is in John 1.29. Behold the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. That's the same word. So he took it away. Nailing is an interesting word. It's the only use in the New Testament and the Old Testament. And it's how God removed the bond against us. And it reflects the permanence of the removal. And I, I gave you the imagery of example of nailing a coffin shut. This is the only use in the New Testament of the word nailing. Most often the Romans nailed the charges above an offender upon the cross with which they were going to be crucified. And this emphasized the power and authority and the standards of Roman government. Nailing it to his cross is a metaphor by which Paul demonstrates Christ satisfied the indictment of the law against us. Remember I said it was a bond of indictment against us? Well, Christ satisfied that indictment of the law against us, and God set it aside when he died on the cross in our place, when we ask forgiveness and we get saved. Paul sees a superscription nailed, a title nailed above Christ containing the bond, our own indictment, the law, that condemns us in place of the actual words of king of the Jews. When Christ was crucified, God nailed the law to his cross. A scholar named Peak wrote that. So, <clears throat> I want to read to you part of a quote I read last week, but only part. It's from Ironside. So we're going to go into a little bit of section here uh, that involves that note where we talk about uh, the... Um, the law uh, and how that reconciles with what Christ did and how he ended the law, okay? So I want you to pay careful attention to this because there's some subtleties here I want you to get. So I'm going to read this quote first. But as God looked upon that cross, Ironside, H.A. Ironside says, 
his holy eyes saw, as it were, another inscription altogether, nailed upon the cross above the head of his blessed son, Lord Jesus, was the handwriting of ten ordinances given at Sinai. It was because this law had been broken to every point that Jesus poured out his blood, thus giving his life to redeem us from the curse of the law. And so all of our sins have been settled for. There the law, which we had so dishonored, has been magnified to the full and the satisfaction which he made, Christ made, of the divine justice. Thus Christ has become the end of the law to everyone that believes. Now, we're going to, we're going to, that's Romans 10, 4. We're going to, we're going to look at that. Christ has become the end of the law to everyone that believes. Let's look at the summary first, right there at the top of page 3 under the first paragraph summary. Paul demonstrates that our forgiveness is made possible due to Christ's sufficiency and our completeness in Christ. God has made us alive in Christ, forgave us. He nullified the claims of the law against us. He blotted it out. He wiped it away and nailed it to the cross. So there's a note here. There are three ways that a gentleman named McLaren, great scholar, uh, said that Christ is the end of the law. Let's look at that. And uh, He's the end of the law for believers, reflecting his sufficiency, God's sufficiency, Christ's sufficiency. And McLaren wrote that. I'm going to read uh, 10.4 to you, Romans 10.4. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone that believes. Okay, we're going to come back to that in just a minute. So the, the quotes here for, for McLaren are the underlined quotes. He's the end of the law's power and punishment. And then the non-underlined explanation, what I wrote, Christ paid the penalty and the price for sin. He bore our punishment. So the law's punishment is at an end because Christ bore our punishment. Now, Christ also is the end of the ceremonial law because it foreshadowed Christ. The law could not say Christ fulfilled it. It only foretold Christ. And we have Christ has already come and he's already died on the cross for our sins and rose again. So they don't need the ceremonial law to point to Christ because he's already been here. Okay, and then the end of the law is moral rule. This is much more subtle. The standard is now Christ. Because he has a higher standard than the law in the Ten Commandments. It's God's word. It's in the New Covenant. God's moral law, which really could be embodied in the Ten Commandments. Yep. Remember when they asked about the two greatest commandments? Love God and love your neighbor. And those are now embodied in the New Covenant, along with the law of Christ, which is sometimes called the law of love. Because... That reflects God's holy standard of righteousness. And that standard, even of that law of Christ, even holds us 
accountable for our thoughts and attitudes. The law didn't do that. It's only what you did. Now it's what you think as well and your attitudes. Yep. So the law is still essential because it reveals our sin, but the law now is not been embodied in the New Testament and what Christ taught us. Called the law of Christ or the law of love. So, and I'm going to do more explaining. We're going to go through a couple of things and make that clear. So, the, the law is still essential. It reveals our sin, our guilt, and our need for a Savior. Romans 3.20, Paul said, uh, is, Therefore, by the deeds of the law, there shall no flesh be justified in his sight. For by the law is the knowledge of sin. So Paul tells us, by law is the knowledge of sin. How would we know what sin is if it weren't for the law? The law tells us what sin is. Okay. So the law and those standards help us understand what sin is and certainly understand our guilt uh, and what and our need for the Savior. Okay? And we're going to look at and read Galatians 3, 24 through 26 in a minute. Okay, now I want to do a quote here from um, MacArthur to kind of do a, go through a process of kind of explaining this. I read to you, Christ is the end of the law. Now in Romans 3.20. Uh, MacArthur says, although the Greek word translated end, Christ is the end of the law, can either mean fulfillment, that is Christ fulfilled the law, Christ is the termination of the law because he fulfilled it and met it all in him. He met the obligations. Although he is a fulfillment and although he is a termination of the law, this isn't the primary meaning here. Uh, it's not a reference to Christ having perfectly fulfilled the law through his teaching or through his sinless life. Instead, the second half of the verse says, for Christ is the end of the law for righteousness for to everyone that believes. Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone that believes. So Paul means that belief in Christ as Lord and Savior ends the sinner's futile, I mean this not worthwhile, impossible, the sinner's futile quest for righteousness through the sinner's imperfect attempts to save himself by obeying the law. So, the Lord Jesus Christ ends the sinner's efforts to save himself by keeping the law because he has already done it. And that's the sense in which Christ is the end of the law. But Christ is the end of the law for righteous to everyone that believes. Okay, now... Um, let me go back and look at this quote one more time. I should go back to McLaren's quote where he says that um, um, Christ is the end of the law. So McLaren mentions three ways in which the cross is the end. The cross of Christ is the end of the law's, it's the end of the law's power of punishment. And it's the end of the law is ceremonial. Third, it's the end of the law's moral rule. Well, it is in the sense that the law is the document uh, that is the moral rule because now 
that has been absorbed into uh, and embodied in Christ's law, which is the law of love. And uh, his, the new covenant. And he, here's his quote. McLaren says, now duty here he describes is what I am obligated to do to, to satisfy my Lord Jesus Christ. Duty is duty now because we see a pattern of conduct, conduct and character in Christ, not the law. Our law is the perfect life and death of Christ, who is at once, at the same time, the ideal of humanity and the reality of de deity. He's a perfect man and he is God. The weakness of all law is that it merely commands but has no power to get its commandments obeyed. But Christ puts his own power within us and his love in our hearts so that we pass from under the dominion of an external commandment into the liberty of an inward spirit. He is to his followers both law and impulse. And by impulse, he means that he is an enabling energy. The law had no power to help us obey uh, God and be righteous. But Christ puts his power within us so that we are enabled to serve him and please him. So he is both to his powers, both law and impulse. He came not to destroy, but to fulfill. So that's the sense in which he meant that. Now, uh, now one clarifying statement. Which, uh, first, he said uh, in that statement I read about the ordinances and commandments in Ephesians 2.15, having abolished in his flesh the enmity, and that was the law, even the law of commandments contained in the ordinances, for to make of himself of two, one new man. So the Jews and Gentiles were together uh, making peace. So through his death, uh, MacArthur says, Christ abolished the Old Testament ceremonial laws, feasts, and sacrifices which uniquely separated Jews from Gentiles. God's moral law, as reflected in the Ten Commandments and written in the hearts of men, was not abolished. It was not stopped and it wasn't canceled or annulled in the sense of gotten rid of. It was absorbed. He uses the word subsumed. I had to look that up. S-U-B-S-U-M-E-D. It means to be absorbed, embodied, or combined in the New Testament, in the New Covenant, because it reflects God's righteous standards. So the Ten Commandments, the principles of the Ten Commandments apply. It's just there's a higher standard, and that's been absorbed into the New Testament, which has a higher standard. Even what I think is now judged. Okay, So the New Testament contains the Ten Commandments and God's moral law and they're now embodied in the new covenant uh, along with the law of Christ that even holds us more accountable for all our thoughts and attitudes. Now, let's look at uh, how is the law involved in um, it says by the, by the knowledge of the law 
is, is sin. Okay. Well, Galatians 3, 24 through 26, if you want to turn there, Galatians says 3, 24, wherefore the law was our schoolmaster, the King James tells us, and that word is a word for tutor. So often the uh, slave was designated to tutor the young people in the house. And, and, and that's the imagery he's using there. Wherefore the law is our schoolmaster to bring us unto Christ that we might be justified by faith. But after that faith has come, we're no longer under a schoolmaster. So when, after faith has come, you're no longer after a schoolmaster. That person in the house would graduate from the school. For you are all the children of God by faith in Christ Jesus. For as many of you have been baptized into Christ, have, uh, have put on Christ. So here's the key to the issue. The law shows us that we are sinners, shows us our guilt, and shows us that Christ can save us. And so by law, is indeed, is a knowledge of sin. And the law brings us, it's our tutor. But after we have faith has come, we're no longer under that. We're not under law anymore. We're under grace. So there we go. Uh, okay. So that helps us see how that all operates there. So uh, not saying that the moral law is dead. Um, they have been absorbed into the new covenant. Now let's, so the law is still essential. It reveals our sin and our guilt and our need for saving. So the law isn't sufficient to save. Christ is sufficient to save us. The law shows us that we're guilty and we need to be saved and Christ saves us. Let's look over the victory over the forces of evil, verse 15. This is the third thing that Christ has done for us. It's in our outline, if you go back to page one, at the bottom of the page there talks about uh, the spiritual circumcision, forgiveness of sins, and victory over the forces of evil. This is a tremendous passage here. The third thing is that Christ has done for us is that he demonstrates his sufficiency and our completeness in him. This is the third thing, that he has victory over the forces of evil. And having spoiled, verse 15, and having spoiled the principalities and powers, he made a show of them openly, triumphing over them in it. In Christ, we are victorious because he has conquered all the evil powers in opposition to him. Now, I... I come up with this uh, alliterated outline, disarmed, disgraced, and defeated. So that's what I'm going to use to kind of help us go through that. And I want to read a quote from MacArthur first. And this I came across, and it um, encouraged me to no end. I'm very excited to share this with you, and I just bear with me. It's a part of a sermon that he preached on this passage. And he says, verse 13 explains it another way. You used to be dead in your transgressions and the uncircumcision of your flesh, but God made you alive and he's forgiven all your transgressions. That is, you come to Christ and God takes you through the grave. 
the old dies, you rise in new life, all the past is gone, all your sins are forgiven, you have a new righteous desire. Verse 14 adds, he canceled the certificate of debt consisting of decrees against us, which was hostile to us and took it out of the way, nailing it to his cross. You know, when they nail the criminal to the cross, they put the crime on the cross. And on the top of the cross, they would put the crime so everybody would know why he was executed. And when they nailed Jesus on the cross, Paul says, they wrote your sins up there and then canceled it because the penalty was paid. Satan has no more any power over you either. Verse 15, because, and this is where we're at, because Christ disarmed the rulers and authorities, meaning the demonic powers, triumphing over them. You come to Christ, you receive forgiveness of sins. You come to Christ, you receive a new nature, a new disposition, a new heart that loves righteousness. You come to Christ and you die to the past and you rise to new life. You come to Christ and you're delivered from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of his dear son. You come to Christ literally, uh, come to Christ and you literally come to the truth that transcends the truth you'll never find anywhere except in the word of God. Even this truth you'll never understand until the spirit of God takes up residence and becomes your teacher. And then you know the deep things of God. It's all in Christ. All truth, all wisdom, all knowledge, all understanding, all peace, all joy, all value, all fulfillment, all satisfaction, all purpose, all deliverance, all strength, all comfort, and all eternal hope is in Christ. To have him is to have everything. Not to have him is to have nothing. The Bible calls these the unsearchable riches of Christ, and indeed they are. Amen. I love that. I, a couple times I've come to that passage and, and practicing Sunday school over the past couple of weeks, and I get so encouraged I have to stop and praise the Lord. <laughs> so that's what I've been endeavoring to talk to you folks about. This is what we have. All of these things, the unsearchable riches of Christ. Christ is... Christ is all and all you need. Okay, so let's look at um, disarm. And having spoiled, this is a different word uh, than verse 8, where it says, he, uh, he, uh, do not let the false prophets spoil you. Uh, that means to kidnap and take you off as pirate treasure. Here, this word means to strip off clothes or arms. So there are two views. You be the theologian, okay? So we have two views. You pick one. The first view interprets this phrase as Christ having stripped off from himself these evil powers that attach themselves to Christ like a wrestler strips away himself from a disabled opponent. J.B. Lightfoot has shared that view. The second view is that evil powers are the object of the stripping off. In other words, Christ disarmed or stripped the evil powers of their weapons and armor as conquered enemies, and they were put to public shame. Erdman, Charles Erdman and Curtis Vaughn believe that. He disarmed the principalities and powers, in other words. Tony Bear believes that. So this view portrays Christ as a victor, 
great triumph over the, the defeated. How many of you believe verse uh, view number one? Raise your hand. How many believe verse? Now you've got a vote on the second one. <laughs> if you didn't, if you didn't vote on the first one, how many of you believe verse one of the uh, first view? None. How many of you believe the second view? Okay, it is a second view, I think. And because I think it, it reflects that also that shows Christ is doing is the aggressor and the one doing the disarming. Okay, so principalities and powers in verse 15a, these are all the evil and enemy angels and all the hostile spiritual powers that are obeying against God, including Satan. All the rulers of darkness, Ephesians 6, 12. Um, Walk out of this church door, and as soon as you get out of it, that's it. It's all you're surrounded by. That's right. Yeah. You are, but you are. Absolutely. Ephesians six twelve says, "For we wrestle against not against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers, against the rulers of the darkness in this world, against spiritual wickedness in high places." And that's right before he talks about put on the armor of God. Wherefore take unto you the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all to stand and I think we're going to stop there uh, I'd love to get through that passage but we didn't I'm not going to rush it because I've got some wonderful things thank you for listening other questions or comments okay I'd like to say one thing thank you I told you this before in private I've been in church all my life and Sunday school teacher and I've never had anybody explain it Praise the Lord. Thank you so much. Uh, it's only by the grace of God. Uh, I love the deep things, and we need to know there. We need to know what we believe so that we are not tossed about to and fro with every wind of doctrine, but we can stand firm on the solid rock, knowing what we believe, and and we can we can enjoy the unsearchable riches of Christ. And uh, I, I love that quote. I get, always get encouraged when I read that. And may the Lord encourage all of you and all of you at home as you hear this, that the Lord is with us uh, and we are complete in him, as Colossians 2.10 says, and that he's forgiven our sins and that he has made, he has disarmed, he has disgraced, and he has defeated all the foes that are against us. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for these dear saints that are here. I pray your great blessing upon each family represented here. I pray for those that are ill, including my own wife and, and others, pastors, parents, uh, Steve and Kathy. We pray your healing hand upon them that you might raise them up uh, and uh, new health and improved health and healing. Pray for those that are that are um, that are suffering emotionally and intellectually and uh, uh, going through trials and tribulations. I pray your healing hand for them. We pray that you bless the service to follow. And again, we pray for those that are in harm's way in the storm in the south, that you would protect them and especially Alice's granddaughter would be with her. Thank you for all you've done for us. We thank you for the unsearchable riches of Christ. I pray that you would encourage us greatly, Father. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.